0: The father uh, wrote a letter to his son, he was a chaplain in the U.S. military, and this is back during World War II, where many times he would often find himself on the front lines where the bombs were exploding, the bullets flying through the air, so that while he was trying to minister to the other men, his own life would be in jeopardy too. Well, one day as his company was traveling through France, they got a chance to take a break, a little break, and during that break he decided to write a letter to his 10-year-old son. The man's name was Stuttered Kennedy, and here's what he wrote. Son, I know you've been praying for me, and and I really appreciate that. But I'm writing this letter to let you know what to pray for. Son, don't don't pray, God, keep my daddy safe. No, instead, I want you to pray, God, make my daddy brave. God, if my daddy has hard things to do, then give him the strength to do it. You see, son, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. I know you and your mom are praying for God to keep me safe, and, and I understand that. But what I'm asking is this, just don't make that the first thing you pray for. You see, son, being safe is not nearly as important as doing the right thing. What an incredible request. Essentially, the father's saying, hey, when you pray for me, pray this, God, make me brave so no matter what kind of situation I find myself in, I am always ready, I am always eager to do the right thing. What a remarkable prayer. And that's the same prayer that Solomon prays in the book of Proverbs. You know that set of verses that many of us as Christians love to quote? uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, that's Hebrew poetry. And you've got to keep in mind that many times what the writer is doing when he's writing poetry like this is in the very first line, he'll state the truth. Here's the lesson I'm trying to teach and emphasize. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then in the second line, many times, rather than just take that truth and repeat it and use different words, no, many times what he does in the second line says, now, I want to take that truth and expand upon it. Let me explain a little bit further what I'm really talking about. What does it really mean to trust in God with all of your heart? Well, it means to lean not on your own understanding. In other words, trusting means leaning. What are you leaning on? What are you counting on to hold you up and get you through the tough moments of life? Are you leaning on your own IQ, your own perception of things? Are you counting on your own wits and cleverness to be able to figure things out? Or are you actually leaning on God for your understanding and insight? That's verse 5. That's our part. Trust God and do what He says. And then you come to verse 6. Verse 6 is God's part. Verse 6 says, in all your ways acknowledge Him. And then get this, and He will direct your steps. Or a better way to translate that, because the Hebrew there actually means, and he will make the path straight. He will make your path smooth. See, many times we hear that phrase, he will direct your steps, and we're instantly thinking, oh, okay, I know what Solomon's praying for. He's praying for guidance. God, I've come upon a situation here, and there are a number of different options, and they all seem kind of plausible to me, so I'm not sure which way to go. God, show me the right thing to do. But I don't think that's what Solomon's asking for. There in the last part of that verse, verse 6, I think what he's praying for is not guidance. I think what Solomon is praying for is courage. God, as I'm about to step into this challenging situation, where doing the right thing is not going to make me popular with others. Or God, as I'm about to step into this challenging situation, where doing the right thing is not going to be easy for me to pull off. God, what I'm asking for is this. Would you remove the obstacles? Those obstacles that might make me hesitate or want to pull back or not want to follow through. God, take those obstacles out of the way so that I will follow through and do what is right in your eyes. When I went to school up in Canada, I had a professor who just made the book of Proverbs come to life for me. And when he talked about this verse, he explained it this way. He said he had a friend, a dear friend, who at a certain moment in his life was just really taking it on the chin. His finances had been cut in half. So life for himself and his wife got really tight. But he and his wife really wanted to honor God with their money. So they decided to once again work their way through the Bible and just check out everything that God's word had to say about finances. And then they made this commitment. Once they understood his guidelines, we are going to remain true to this. Now, they knew this wasn't going to be easy. They knew from time to time their commitment to do the right thing was going to be put to the test. And sure enough, one day the husband's there in a store and he comes across this item that his wife had always wanted to purchase. But she was never able to buy it because it never fit the budget. But here it was on sale. I mean, it was marked down to $40. And the husband thought, wow, I've never seen it this low before. What a deal. I can't pass this up. Man, buying this is going to make my wife so happy. But rather than follow his own heart, rather than lean on his own understanding, he thought, you know, I know this is, this is not extravagant at all. It's only $40. But with all the other things we need to buy this week, this still does not fit within our budget. So before I purchase this, I better go back home first and check with my wife. He got home that night and his wife said she had a big surprise i was helping this elderly lady at the church I, I gave her a ride to the goodwill store and while she uh, while i was waiting for her to get the things that she needed i decided i would just take a walk around the store as well and wouldn't you know it right there on the shelf was that item that i've always wanted to purchase it was brand new and on sale for two dollars somebody just donated the day before and so i bought it now that is proverbs 3 6. in all your ways acknowledge him in all your ways try to honor god and he'll make the path straight. Here was God honoring this couple because they were trying to remain true to the guidelines of his word and use their money in a wise way. And God, knowing the tight situation they were in, the constraints that they were within, God worked out a situation where this woman would be able to buy what she needed without having to break the budget. See, God understands that doing the right thing is not always easy. Sometimes when you make this commitment to follow him, life's going to get really tough. So God makes a promise, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that any hardships that come your way because you're trying to do the right thing, know this, God will go in front, God will go before you, and begin to smooth the way so that you can stay on the right path and do what is right in his eyes. Now, I think we have a perfect picture of this in action with this scripture we're gonna stay today. Here's Elijah and the widow. Here are two people who find themselves in a very challenging set of circumstances. Circumstances where in order to do the right thing, their life might be a risk. I mean, they're in a very dangerous situation, and yet every day for both Elijah and the widow, God goes before them and he straightens the path. He removes the obstacles so they can do what is right in his eyes. Watch how this happens. 1 Kings chapter 17 let's start let's start with verse verse 7 sometime later the brook dried up where Elijah is at sometime later this brook where he's camping out has dried up because there's no rain in the land well the reason why there's no rain is because that's what Elijah's prayed for King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament, they have been leading God's people astray. They've been getting God's people to believe things that are not true. They've been encouraging God's people to do things that are just wrong. Well, years and years earlier, God had said twice in the book of Deuteronomy and once in the book of Leviticus that if his people ever went astray, if his people ever stopped listening to him, he would shut up the sky and make it stop raining. Well, one day here's Elijah, and he's reading through his Bible, and he begins to put two and together, and he's thinking, hey, God, I think we're in one of those situations right now. I mean, you look at Ahab and Jezebel and all the evil things they're doing and the bad influence that they're having upon your people, and God, I think it's time for you to take some drastic measures and shut up the sky. Just remove the clouds, remove every bit of moisture from the air, make it stop raining. God answers his prayer because at that moment in history, in this particular situation, that was the right thing to pray for. Well, what that means in answering that prayer, that means hard times are coming to the nation of Israel. And those hard times are coming not just to the bad people, but for the good people, too, like Elijah. So the question becomes, can God take care of his people, the good people, when they, too, are suffering from a lack of rain? And the answer is yes. That's why Elijah is camping out here by this brook. Verses 3 and 4. You go back to the earlier part of the chapter. Verses 3 and 4. God brought him to this particular place where every morning and every evening he'd bring in the ravens. So they'd bring him bread and meat. So every day he always had plenty to eat. And being camped out by this stream, this ever-flowing water, he'd always have plenty to drink. But now with the drought, the brook has dried up. i got nothing to drink anymore. What do I do? Well... Common sense, hey, lean on your own understanding. All he has to do is just move down to the Jordan River. Right now, this brook that he's at, he's on the east side of the Jordan River, but he's not that far away. Elijah, you don't even have to bother to pray. You don't even have to bother to check with God. The Jordan River's not far away, and there's still plenty of water there, so there's a viable option. Just go ahead and do it. You know, it just makes sense. And yet, Elijah won't move. Why? Verses 3 and 4, God brought him to this place. And until God says otherwise, until I have some confirmation from God, I'm not moving. I'm leaning on him. Even when the brook's dried up, I'm leaning on him for understanding. Well, the understanding comes the next verse. Here's a new command. God always knows where you're at. God always knows when the brook is dried up. So trust him. Verse 8, he tells Elijah, he says, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Zion and stay there. Because there I have directed a widow to supply you with, with food. <laughs> now, if I'm Elijah, I'm thinking, what? This is not encouraging at all. What God is asking Elijah to do is, is, is risky. Zarephath is 100 miles away. Here's Elijah. He's on the east side of the Jordan River. And Zarephath is 100 miles away. It sits on the, it's a little village. It sits in the Mediterranean coast. It sits in another country, a nation known as Phoenicia. That's the nation where Jezebel grew up. In other words, here's God leading Elijah to enemy territory. Here's God bringing Elijah right into the heart of the lion's den, a very dangerous place. This command makes no sense at all. Not only that, for Elijah to get from point A to point B, from where he is on the east side of the Jordan River, clear over here to Zarephath, that's a hundred mile hike. But that's a hundred mile hike when there's a drought going on. Every day a blazing hot sun, water's really hard to find, dehydration becomes a major issue. That's a long hike to take. And not only that, in order to make that trip, he's got to travel on these open, I mean wide open, unprotected roads. At a point in time when King Ahab has put out a contract on him. And here's everybody in Israel suffering from this famine, this drought. I mean, they're in desperate straits. They're low on cash. So many of those fellow Israelites would probably be more than happy to grab Elijah and turn him into Ahab. Hey, sorry, Elijah, but I need the money right now. Not only is God bringing him to a dangerous place, but in order to get to that dangerous place, he has to take this dangerous journey. And then once he gets there to Zarephath, just who is it that God picked out to take care of him? Well, this poor widow, who will explain to us in verses 10 and 11 that right now she and her son are down to their very last meal. This is the family that God's picked to take care of his prophet for the next couple of years? This makes no sense at all. But God said it, and Elijah believes it. Because God said it, even if it doesn't make sense to me, because God said it, I know it's the right thing to do. So even though this is going to be hard, he leaves the dried up brook, And he travels to Zarephath. Now pause for a moment, just a little parenthesis. Why would God issue a command like this? Why would God bring Elijah all the way over here to this foreign land? Well, I'm sure there's a number of answers to that question, but here's one. Because back in that day and time, people were really mixed up in their thinking. And that included the Israelites. People back in that day and time thought that every nation had its own God. But once you moved away from that country, you moved away from the influence of that God, that God's ability to help you out. I mean, as great as the gods are, they too have their limitations, and they can only handle so much at once, and they can only cover so much territory. And that, and people even thought that about the God of Israel. I mean, you get over to 2 Kings chapter 5, and you see an example of this kind of thinking. You run into this man by the name of Naaman. He's a commander in the Syrian army, and he's come down to the nation of Israel to meet with this prophet Elisha. This is not the guy we're talking about right now, Elijah, the guy with a J in the middle of his name. This is the guy with the S in the middle of his name, Elisha, the one that's going to be Elijah's protege, the one he will disciple and train to take his place once he leaves. Well, anyway, Naaman comes down to Israel to meet with Elisha because he's heard Elisha has connections with the God of Israel, and the God of Israel just might be able to cure him of his leprosy. He's got this major problem, leprosy, and God does cure him. It's wonderful. But you remember later on in chapter 5 what Naaman does? After he's been cured, he's just so thrilled. and He's, wow, I've never met a god like this before. What does he do? He gets two mules, and he loads them down with a bunch of dirt, Israeli dirt. Why? So that when he goes back home to his country of Syria, he can take all that Israeli dirt, spread it out in the floor of his tent, and get his knees on Israeli dirt so he can worship Israel's god. You see, Naaman has assumed, just like everybody else in that day and time, that you've got to be on his turf, his land, in order to be able to connect with him. That even Elisha's God, just like all the other gods around the world, they are limited to a certain place, to a certain piece of geography. So if you want to connect with them, if you want to be blessed by them, you've got to come here, not there. Now we look back on all that and think, man, isn't that silly? But isn't it true that we tend to think that way too? That God's power and authority is... Pretty much limited to what happens in this building on a sunday morning where it's really easy to get excited and pumped up because here we are sitting with a bunch of other christians i mean it's so easy to believe in an environment like this because everybody else believes too but once you get out of this holy spot and you get back out into the real world where every day you are surrounded by people who never read their bible they never pray they never even think about god out there god doesn't seem so big anymore now he seems kind of small and our confidence in him gets kind of shaky. Well, the problem's not with God. The problem's with us. God is not small. What's, the problem is our understanding of him is too small. Our faith in him is too small. That was the danger for Elijah. So God brings Elijah all the way to this foreign land so he can show him, hey, Elijah, I'm not just the God of Israel. I'm the God of Phoenicia, too. And even here in this dark spot, he is bringing him at that moment in time to the darkest place on the planet, morally, spiritually. More evil going on here in Phoenicia than anywhere else in the world. But God wants to show him, even in this dark place, I'm still in charge. And Elijah, I can take care of you. So watch what happens. Verse 10. So Elijah obeys. He goes to Zarephath. And when he gets there to the town gate, a widow... Man, I'm sorry. Do I have this too far up? I'll put it down here. That's, that's not the problem. It's me. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Ignore this. <laughs> so he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks, and Elijah calls out to her and said, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I can have a drink? She says, sure, I'll, I'll be glad to get that for you. And then Elijah says, and by the way, while you're at it, uh, would you get me a piece of bread too? Now the first time I read this, I think he's, he's being selfish and demanding. He's not doing that at all. If you were reading this in the original Hebrew, Elijah's actually being very gentle, very polite, very kindly asking for just a little bit of help. But the poor widow's going to explain to him, she is so destitute, hey, this is not the best time for me to have an out-of-town guest. I mean, the reason why I'm out here picking up these sticks is so I can build one last fire and prepare one last meal for my son, just a little muffin. And we're going to have to split it between the two of us. And then after that, we've got nothing left. We're just going to starve. We're going to die. Notice how she explains it verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, Elijah, I don't have any bread. I mean, only a handful of flour in one jar and a little bit of cooking oil in the other jar. And I'm gathering a few sticks to take them home and make a meal, one last meal for myself, my son, so we need it. And then after that, we'll just slowly die. Elijah says to her he can see the anxiety on her face she has a a, a legitimate reason to be scared but now Elijah wants to reassure her there's a God who can take care of you Elijah said to her don't be afraid you go home and do as you said but first you make that little muffin for me I know this is hard you're thinking this is crazy but do this just trust me on this You make that little muffin for me, bring it to me, and then you'll go back and you'll find out there's still some left over. Enough for you and your son. In fact, from this moment on, it's going to be like that every single day. Verse 14, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, and the widow's going to learn just like Elijah. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of Phoenicia too. The Lord says 'The the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she went and did big step of faith. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her son because the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with his word, with the word of the Lord. Now understand what's happening here. God is not saying, hey, you do what I say and tomorrow morning sitting there in the corner of the kitchen, you're going to find 10, 25 pound bags of flour and five giant kegs of cooking oil and you're never going to worry again. That's not how he provided what God said was this you do what I say today, and then the next day when you come to the cupboard, there's going to be just enough flour in that jar and enough, just enough cooking oil in that other jar to prepare another meal for yourself, your son, and Elijah. And then the next morning when you come to the cupboard, there'll be just enough flour and just enough cooking oil to prepare another meal. And on and on it will go. It's daily trust in the daily providence of God to provide us with our daily bread. Every day, the widow and the son. And Elijah, got to lean on God and trust him to provide. And every day he shows up. Every day he takes care of them. Now, what do we learn from all this? And how do we take what we've learned from Elijah's world and bring it to our world? I remember as a little boy going to the store with my parents and noticing that many times before they'd make any kind of purchase, they would look for the good housekeeping seal of approval. Because if that seal wasn't on the item, uh, they were kind of leery about making the purchase. But if they saw that this product had this good housekeeping seal of approval on it, it's been tested and approved and it's safe to buy. You buy this product and more than likely you bought something that is trustworthy. I think that's what the Bible is talking about in Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. Before you step into any new venture, first of all, ask yourself, but does this have God's seal of approval? And you're probably thinking to yourself, but David, man, you make this sound so cut and dried, so clear and simple, like it's an easy thing. I've never found that to be easy. I mean, do I take this new job? Do I marry this person? Do I accept this offer? How do I know that this situation, this new situation has his seal of approval? Many times in the past, I've come upon a a, a situation where there's a number of different ways I can go, a number of different options, and they all look pretty good to me at that moment. And I go checking through God's word, and I don't see anything in his word that says he's for it. But at the same time as I go looking through the scriptures, I don't see anything in the Bible where it says he's against it. So how do I know if that particular situation has his seal of approval? Great question. Here's the way I'd answer it. Years and years ago, Noel Staten would picture it like this. He says, think of the Bible like an umbrella. All throughout scripture, God's teaching principles and God is giving commands. He's providing this umbrella. Here's what God wants for us. This is God's will for our life. And as Christians we make a commitment to stay within those guidelines, to abide underneath that umbrella. So, if in taking that new job, or if in marrying that person, or if in accepting that offer, it causes me in any way to violate any one of these principles, any one of these commands, then I know I have stepped out from underneath the umbrella. I have stepped outside the will of God. I do not have his blessing upon my life. But if in taking that new job, if in marrying that person, if in accepting that offer, I find it not only stays within the guidelines of God's words, but it also enhances my life with the Lord It increases my capacity to experience and enjoy what God wants for my life, then by all means, just go for it, because that situation obviously has his blessing. Let me illustrate Back in 1998, there was a young lady by the name of Crystal Newquest, and she found herself in a really tricky situation that required her to make a choice. And for Crystal, the choice was clear. She knew what she had to do. Crystal was playing in a softball league where she did not get a chance to play one inning in one game for the entire year. The entire year, she had to sit on the bench. And it was not because she was a bad player. She was an all-star first baseman. Everybody knew this. She was a great player. But Crystal had to sit on the bench because she had made the decision to put duct tape on the name of the sponsor for their team. The sponsor, the one who was sponsoring their team and, and provided the uniforms for them was the local bars, a place called The Carousel. This is over in Illinois. And, and Crystal says, I'm not going to advertise their name and here's why. For years and years Crystal thought her grandpa had died of a heart attack, but then she found out one day she was down in the basement, just happened to come across this death certificate and noticed that he died from cirrhosis. Now, cirrhosis is a disease that causes the liver to degenerate. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes that disease comes about because somebody's been drinking too much alcohol. And in her grandpa's case, that's what was true. And Crystal thought, I cannot promote a bar. I cannot promote the drinking of alcohol. I cannot promote the very thing that killed my grandpa. I'm putting duct tape on that. Now, what you really need to appreciate about this story is Crystal's not a troublemaker. (laughs) She's a team player. I mean, she's not trying to be a, a belligerent. She's not some obnoxious, rebellious teenager who just loves to stir things up and loves to create a controversy and get everything, everybody all hot in mind. No. From the get-go, when this dilemma first came up, Crystal did her very best to try to resolve this in a very quiet way. She went to the league officials and said, Can I play for another team so I don't have to play for that team and wear their uniforms? And the league officials said, No, teams have already been set. So Crystal said, well, can I buy my team new uniforms? I'll pay for it myself. I'll be their sponsor. And the league official said, no, we've already made an agreement with the local bar. They get to sponsor your team. You either take the duct tape off or you sit on the bench. And for Crystal Newquist, the choice was clear. She sat on the bench. Now, here's the part of the story that I appreciate the most. Knowing that she was never going to be allowed to play, yet every game she showed up. Every inning of the other games, there she was sitting on the bench. And as she sat on the bench, she was not bitter. She did not sit there and sulk. Crystal decided, hey, I can't help the team by playing in the field, I'm gonna help them from the bench. So every inning of every game, she shouted louder than anybody else in the stands. She clapped and cheered and did everything she could to encourage her team to win. Now, when you hear a story like that, do you admire Crystal or do you think, oh, what a foolish young lady? I mean, when you find yourself in a situation where you are forced to make a choice, at that point in time, what is most important to you? doing the right thing, or pleasing other people? Is the direction of your life determined by conviction or by convenience? In this scripture, we see Elijah and we see the widow, and they find themselves in a challenging situation where doing the right thing is anything but easy. But in both cases, they decide to trust God, to do what is right regardless. And I'll just leave the consequences and the results to him. And sure enough, God does His part. Every day, He goes in front, He goes before, He smooths the way so they can stay in the right path and do what is right in His eyes. That's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Verse 5 is our part. Trust God and do what is right. And verse 6 is His part. And He will go before you to straighten the path, to remove the obstacles. So no matter what's happening around you, you can still do what is right. Let's pray. God, you alone, you alone know what is best for us. God, help us to trust that. Help us to believe in your word. Make us eager to do what you say. And God, my prayer today is this again and again, every single day, would you just confirm for us that you really are God, that you are in charge. And that no matter what kind of difficulty we find ourselves in, that you are more than able to take care of us. God, I ask you for that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. I think this moment of the Lord's Supper, we're preparing for the Lord's Supper. And I think this moment is a perfect example of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Because here's a moment in time where we're trusting what God did for us at the cross that God dealt with our sin and all of its consequences and he smoothed the way before us so that even right now we could experience and enjoy eternal life. Here's the best example of all of how God takes care of us. So this morning as we prepare for communion, let's sing with the praise team.